Thank you, Hilary, for this warm welcome. Um, and thank you, Louisa and Anna, for inviting me uh, today. This is a very exciting opportunity for me to present this uh, new research project of mine on the colours of the William Burgess's great bookcase. Uh, I am also very grateful to Matthew Winterbottom for agreeing to offer uh, a response to my paper today. Uh, now, not only has Matthew provided me with some of the most the, the beautiful images uh, that you will see tonight, he has also been very supportive of my uh, research, so uh, I very much look forward to our exchange as well as to your questions and feedback. So on the first chilling entrance day of the International Exhibition of 1862, the Chambers Journal described the overwhelmed reaction of the working class crowds in the, in the following lyrical terms. There was a great inarticulate cry of admiration and delight as the fountain dancing in the sunshine and the long rainbow roof of the nave shone out upon us as though a gate had opened in paradise. Now this is one of the rare enthusiastic comments on the architecture and decoration of the exhibition building which most visitors called a monstrosity more akin to a factory than to a cathedral. For the Cornhill, God had even been, I quote, bricked out uh, by the royal engineer Captain Francis Folk, who produced the design for the edifice. This was indeed no new Jerusalem, lacking the ideal transparency which had characterized the crystal uh, palace. The colored decoration hastily chosen by John Gregory Crace equally failed to match the harmony of the color arrangements of the great exhibition, as noted by the critic. Compare the colouring of the 1851 building or the Crystal Palace at Sydenham with this and we see that the blues and yellows are not of that violet kind that Mr. Crace's artist, as he calls him, has been allowed to throw in quite promiscuously as to tint. The description of Crace's colours as promiscuous is a revealing one as the adjective may be understood in both spatial and moral terms as signifying either discordant or undiscriminating in sexual relations. The latter meaning points back to a long aesthetic tradition confining colour to a superficial subservient role due to its shameful associations with the base materiality of the body. The primal desires triggered by such alluring colours were deemed of a sexual rather than aesthetic nature, as shown by the similar attacks formulated against the meretricious excesses of John Gibson's Tinted Venus, which was very much the polemical star of the show. Now, if the working classes responded so positively to the building and to some of its gaudy exhibits, it was certainly, therefore, because their less refined senses were instinctively drawn to the vivid, enticing hues. Anticipating such charges, Crace tried to vindicate his chromatic choices. In a paper entitled The Decoration of the Building, delivered at the Society of Arts before the opening of the exhibition, he explained that he adopted the principle of counter-changing colours in keeping with, I quote, the decorations of the early masters which abound in Italy. Uh, for instance, in the chapel of San Corporeale in Ovieto Cathedral. And yet, Crace equally claimed that his scheme was radically modern, reflecting the new science of colour based on the laws of complementary hues devised by the director of the Gobelin Dye Works, the chemist Eugène Chevreul. Just as Chevreul's Loi du contraste simultané des couleurs, translated into English in 1854, aimed at improving the chromatic effects of dye stuffs, Crace offered advice to exhibitors of fabrics on how to make their colours more appealing to the public eye, in accordance with what he believed to be the chromatic harmony of the building he had decorated. This is Crace. Uh, many rich and valuable stuffs were seriously injured at the exhibition of 1851 by injudicious arrangement of them. It is necessary to bear in mind that all colours have their complementaries, which add or detract from the beauty of the adjoining colours, according to what they may be. Now, Crace's line of defence, drawing both on the polychromy of Italian Gothic, made fashionable by John Ruskin's Stones of Venice, and the modern science of perception, reveals a form of disruption in chromatic chronology, which I believe to be symptomatic of the 1860s, a major turning point in the history of colour, which suddenly gained an extraordinary autonomy and visual prominence in debates on both art and industry. It is this chromatic turd that I wish to explore today so as to shed new light on the chromophilia of two important Victorian figures, 
On the one hand, the architect William Burgess, who designed the international exhibition's medieval court, and on the other, William Morris, who was also one of the court's major exhibitors. My approach will be uh, threefold. Uh, first, I will discuss the international exhibition as a chromatic event, signalling this turn which promoted colour as an ambivalent signifier of the modern in a rapidly changing industrial world. I will show in particular how these modern colours, synthesised by an expanding chemical industry, were increasingly dematerialised in contrast to the polychromy of past ages which retained its bodily materiality. Then I will situate Burgess's and Morris's nostalgic chromophilia within these debates, mostly shaped by Ruskin's understanding of natural colour as central to the poetry of architecture. Now, in spite of their differences, the two decorator poets indeed shared a Ruskinian passion for the colours of the past, both pagan and Christian, which is strikingly reflected in their weaving of chromatic narratives, whether in verse or in painting. The last section of my presentation will focus on two specific examples of Burgess's and Morris's ambivalent responses to the changing colours of modernity. I will first discuss Burgess's great bookcase, which I choose to read as a chromatic anthology, that is to say, as a collection of narratives about the colours of the pagan and Christian past, which nonetheless resonate with contemporary discussions about colour in art. Although Morris was not a contributor to the bookcase, his approach to the art of painted furniture could not have overlooked the precedent of Burgess. Conversely, Burgess was certainly influenced by Morris's colourful depiction of the Gothic past in the defence of Guinevere, of which he owned a copy of the 1858 edition. Following my literary reading of Burgess's chromatic narratives, I will thus conclude with a material and contextual approach to the expression red brick lip, which Morris used in his poem Golden Wings, and which I understand as the poet's attempt to re-establish the lost body of colour as the true site of artistic expression. Now, pictorial turn, material turn, um, such labels are increasingly fashionable in Victorian studies. Uh, W.J.T. Mitchell was already very much aware of this craze for paradigmatic shifts when in um, 1994 he drew on Foucault's approach to the scopic regimes of modernity to coin the concept of pictorial turn, central to visual culture theory. Retracing a long philosophical tradition of iconophobia, he concludes that, I quote, this anxiety, this need to defend our speech against the visual is, I want to suggest, a sure sign that a pictorial turn is, t is taking place. Now, the sudden outburst of chromophobia triggered off by the gaudy colours of the international exhibition may also be understood as a sign that somehow a chromatic turn was underway. This was indeed a chromatic event in many ways, even more so probably than the Great Exhibition of 1851, which recent studies in Victorian material culture have heralded as a key moment in the emergence of a new type of relation to the object. But whereas the ekphrastic rhetoric surrounding the Crystal Palace was all about transparency and colour as light, by 1862, new materials had come to the fore, from the aniline dyes devised for an expanding textile industry to new coloured inks uh, perfecting the art of chromolithography, which was used to reproduce the event itself, alongside more traditionally hand-tinted uh, stereoscopic photographs. Now, in the conclusion to his report uh, on the medals awarded at the International Exhibition, the President of the Council of Chairmen, uh, Lord Taunton, clearly emphasised this shift by praising the transformation for industrial application of, I quote, new raw materials hitherto considered as waste. Now, he was certainly thinking here of the mauve mania brought about by William Perkins' accidental discovery of coal-tar-based aniline morvin in 1856, for which the chemist was awarded a medal in 1862. The crinolines of the women visiting the exhibition were thus newly dyed in the same bright aniline colours uh, displayed in the section of the exhibition devoted to chemical substances and products. 
Now, the substance which Perkin and his epigones thus transformed into a beautiful rainbow of dyes was literally industrial refuse, that is to say, coal tar, possibly the most evil-smelling and unsightly of materials. And yet, as noted by the New York Times correspondent in London for the exhibition, the potential aesthetic applications of these new industrial colours were infinite. I quote, when these new colours have been naturalised in the world of art, as well as in manufactures, what extraordinary results may be anticipated from the pencils of great colourists? At present, the manufacturers carry everything before them. They can make a silk dress of tough, durable, palpable material a hundred times brighter and more beautiful than the best artists can paint it. Now, the need for aniline dyes to be naturalized in order for artists to accept using them uh, clearly suggests that the application of industrial colors to artistic practice was a challenge as much as an opportunity for painters. The word naturalize uh, implicitly points to the artificiality of these new dyes, which had very little in common with the organic and mineral pigments which the painters of the past used to grind, although by the mid-19th century, most artists relied on colour men, who, as noted by Philip Ball, did little more than package the ready-made paints from manufacturers. As paint and dye manufacture progressively became almost solely a matter of chemical synthesis, colour appeared more and more dematerialised uh, to the artist who was either confronted with abstract chemical formulas or with a chromatic terminology which had little to do with a natural provenance, as with the dye and pigment magenta, for instance, uh, uh, magenta named after one of Napoleon's victories in 1859. As observed by Michael Tosik, uh, the radical transformation of materials brought about by the aniline revolution thus paradoxically led to, I quote, a killing off of the body of color in both art and industry. For Morris, it certainly killed the age-old art of dying, which he would attempt to revive in the 1870s and 1880s. I quote Morris here, of these dyes, it must, so he's talking about the aniline dyes, of these dyes, I must be in, it must be enough to say that their discovery, while conferring the greatest honour on the abstract science of chemistry, and while doing the great service to capitalists in their hunt after profits, has terribly injured the art of dyeing, and for the general public has nearly destroyed it as an art. Anyone wanting to produce dyed textile with any artistic quality in them must entirely forego the modern commercial methods in favour of those which are at least as old as Pliny, who speaks of them being old in his time. For Ruskin too, aniline dyeing despiritualized as well as dematerialized colour by severing it from nature. Ruskin indeed believed that colour was, I quote, the purifying or sanctifying element of material beauty. This conception also coloured his architectural theory. A natural theologian, he thus praised the true colours of architecture as those of natural stone in the seven lamps of architecture. And this is Ruskin up here. Uh, I cannot therefore consider architecture as in any wise perfect without colour. Our building, if it is well composed, is one thing and is to be coloured as nature would colour one thing a shell, a flower, or an animal. Ruskin's emphasis on the ethics of colour and the honesty of materials in architecture also evoked in his 1837 series of articles on the poetry of architecture echoes Augustus Pugin's celebration of English red bricks, which he used for his own house, St Mary's Grange, and which inspired a generation of architects from William Butterfield to George Street and his apprentices Morris and Philip Webb, who partly conceived uh, Morris's red house with both these Ruskinian and Puginian models in mind. For Ruskin, chromatic appreciation could not therefore be reduced to pseudo-scientific arrangements such as those devised by Chevreul or his English exponent, Owen Jones, which he strongly rejected, claiming that, I quote, a man of no talent, a bad colorist, would, would be ready to give you mathematical reasons for every colour he employs. Such rules not only dematerialise colour by privileging the eye over the hand, the optical over the haptical, but also threatened to unweave the rainbow of nature. 
Now, in order to retrieve the lost sanctity of colour, Ruskin turned to the past. In 1856, he thus embraced the Middle Ages as the true ages of gold. I quote, And first, it is evident that the Dark Ages, that the title Dark Ages, given to the medieval centuries, is, respecting art, wholly inapplicable. There were the ages of gold, ours are the ages of umber. The Middle Ages had their wars and agonies, but also intense delights. Their gold was dashed with blood, but ours is sprinkled with dust. Their life was interwoven with white and purple, ours is one seamless stuff of brown. Now Ruskin's reading of the darkness and opacity of modernity reflects his ambivalent engagement with the body of colour, the blood of the past anachronistically jarring with the dust of the present. Drawing on a sartorial metaphor a la Carlyle, uh, Ruskin contrasts the costly, sacred golds and purples of medieval fabrics with the common, seamless stuff of brown of modernity, which he describes as umber, an earth pigment he certainly understood in its etymological sense as derived from the Latin ombra, meaning shadow. Now, Ruskin's aesthetic and ideological reappraisal of the colours of the medieval past was extremely influential in the second half of the 19th century, especially for Burgess and Morris. If Morris's debt to Ruskin is well known and well documented, uh, Burgess's interest in Ruskin's architectural criticism is less frequently discussed, especially with regard to colour. And yet, Burgess praised the works of the Victorian critic and echoed his condemnation of the bleakness of the industrial age, which he contrasted with the vivid hues of the medieval past. Um, This is Burgess. So, since the great French Revolution, all colour has been gradually dying out of the male costume until we have got reduced to our present gamut of brown, black and neutral tint. This absence of colour is really a very serious consideration, for the eye of the designer is naturally affected by what he sees around him. It may, be, it may probably be objected that at least we get colour in our female costume. This is true, but then the form is so utterly bad that it is totally unfit for art purposes. If we search into the reason of this falling off, I am afraid we must refer it to no less a person than the impress of the French. Now, this implicit reference to Empress Eugénie's chromatic taste is a revealing one, as it, is, as it was she who launched throughout Europe the fashion for Annalyn Mauve. Oh, what happened here? Annalyn Mauve. Uh, the most desirable modern colour par excellence. This quotation is taken from Burgess's 1865 lectures on art applied to industry, which take the international exhibition as a starting point for a reflection on the future of English art manufacturers. The history of this series is actually an interesting one, as in conformity with the bequest of Dr. Cantor, these are the Cantor lectures, uh, Burgess delivered his lectures at the same time as the chemist Crace Colvert, whose main focus was the Annalyn revolution and its impact on art and industry. So there's an interesting convergence here uh, with regard to colour. Now, Burgess strongly believed that the glowing vestiges of medieval arts and crafts from illuminated manuscripts to stained glass could help reform the so-called lesser arts. If Burgess's and Morris's passion for colour has been evoked in recent criticism, it is very rarely analysed in this nostalgic, reminiscent dimension. Moreover, the names of Morris and Burgess are almost never associated, although they both stood out in 1862 as key figures in the revival of polychrome medieval furniture. Now, in the medieval court which Burgess designed for the Ecclesiological Society as a tribute to Pugin's own colourful medieval court of 1851, Morris and Co. thus exhibited several pieces of uh, painted furniture, including... Here. That's it. That's perfect. Including the King René Honeymoon Cabinet, which Burgess praised in his 1865 lectures. Now, this fascination with painted furniture stemmed from Morris's and Burgess's formative trips to the Gothic cathedrals of northern France in the mid-1850s. 
According to Clive Wainwright, uh, the two men may even have met as early as 1856 when Street uh, took his apprentice uh, to Lille to see an exhibition of the designs for the new cathedral, Notre Dame de la Treille, uh, a competition which uh, Burgess and Henry Clotten won with their project aptly entitled Fideris Arca, or Ark of the Covenant, uh, which included a drawing of a painted organ case. Now, the following year, Morris and his Oxford friends painted the Oxford Union murals, which Coventry Patmore described as reminiscent of the glowing pages of a medieval manuscript in defiance to the scientific rules of colour prescribed by Owen Jones. In his 1858 lectures on the future of art in England, uh, George Street discussed the murals and concluded, I quote, that the pre-Raphaelite movement is identical with our own. And by our own, he was clearly including his friend Burgess, who also advocated the Ruskinian model of the art architect in his 1862 lecture on the various systems of coloured decoration in the Middle Ages. Moreover, Burgess and Morris evolved in the same circles in the late 1850s, possibly meeting at the Hogarth Club or through Burgess's neighbour George Boyce, who was a close friend of Rossetti. Now, Burgess' abstract of diaries uh, clearly emphasised these connections, as if he had wished to be remembered as a member of, the, of this artistic clique. So I don't know if you can see this here, but Morris is, you know, is, is, is included in the, the important person, the people that Burgess met in 1859. So Morris, Mrs. Morris, and there's also Rossetti here, and there's a reference to the Hogarth Club here, of which Morris uh, was also a member. Um, now, in contrast, Morris is disappointingly silent about Burgess, although the latter was invited to Red House in 1861. There is also evidence that Burgess collaborated with Morris and Co. on the King Honey Cabinet, designed for and by J.B. Seddon, um, uh, another common acquaintance. The subject of the cabinet, illustrating the arts uh, patronised by King René, certainly appealed to Burgess, whose own great bookcase adopts a similar allegorical composition as he owned a copy uh, of Théodore de Quatre Barbes' 1849 re-edition of the complete works of King René, which Morris may have consulted alongside uh, another possible source, Walter Scott's novel Anna von Gerstein. Now, the example of Scott, Walter Scott, uh, whom Burgess and Morris both cherished, is interesting uh, as he was one of the first writers to emphasize the dazzling heraldic colors of the medieval past in his poetry and fiction, thus breaking away from the more somber projections found in the Gothic novels of Horace Walpole or Anne Radcliffe. Burgess was himself a great lover of poetry, whether pagan, medieval or romantic, as the contents of his personal library reveal. Um, in an 1857 lecture entitled Paganism in the Middle Ages, he thus insists that, I quote, literature has in every age influenced and in, in a great degree controlled the lesser arts of paintings and sculpture. Interesting how literature is above painting and, and, and sculpture, and at least the details of architecture. In some instances, indeed, it has influenced architecture itself. The present revival of medieval art is due principally to the novels of Sir Walter Scott. But in that lecture, Burgess also quotes Chaucer, Boccaccio and Christine de Pizan, whose works shaped Morris's and, and his friend's early medievalist endeavours, uh, as shown by this beautiful painted jewel casket designed for Jane Morris. Now, the fascination for medieval literature, beautifully illustrated in the narrative dimension of Burgess's uh, painted furniture, may explain why the French architect Charles Lucas, in his obituary of Burgess, described him as an architect doublé d'un poète, so an architect and a poet. Burgess was indeed rather original in emphasizing the influence of pagan myths on uh, medieval poets at a time when the Battle of the Styles opposing the classical to the Gothic was raging in architectural circles, leading to uh, Lord Acton's assertion in 1859 that, I quote, two great principles divide the world and contend for the mastery, 
antiquity and the Middle Ages. This eclecticism also appealed to Morris and his friends who medievalized pagan epics like the Iliad, of course, in their decoration of the Red House, uh, an early sign of what Walter Pater would later describe as Morris's, I quote, charming anachronisms. Now, these poetic endeavors interestingly coincided with archaeological explorations in, into the use of polychromy in both ancient Greek and Gothic architecture. Now, in the uh, early 1850s, Jacques-Ignacitorf, Owen Jones, and Gottfried Semper indeed noted that if the Middle Ages were far from being the Dark Ages, Greek architecture and sculpture also needed to be retrieved from monochrome misconceptions, partly inherited from Winkelmann's praise of the marmoreal purity of the Hellenic heritage. Burgess was actively involved in these debates within the Royal Institute of British Architects, as shown by his numerous publications on the subject in the late 1850s, as well as by his two polychromy albums, um, possibly dating back to the same period. But this was also the case for Morris, who, according to Fiona McCarthy, kept on reading Building News and other architectural journals long after he had left Street's office, as this quotation from a later lecture on Gothic architecture reveals. I quote, let me note in passing that the necessar necessarily ordinary conception of a Gothic interior as being a colorless, whitey-gray place dependent on nothing but the architectural form is about as far from the fact as the uh, corresponding idea of a Greek temple standing in all the chastity of white marble. We must remember, on the contrary, that both buildings were clad and that the noblest part of their real raiment was their share of a great epic, a story appealing to the hearts and minds of men. Now, this passage, which recalls the controversies on the meretricious successes of Gibson's supposedly unchaste tinted Venus in her polychrome niche designed by Owen Jones, uh, not only draws on the sartorial imagery so dear to Ruskin, Burgess, and Semper, it is also all about weaving epic narratives in and about color. Which leads me to the last section of my presentation, exploring two examples of such chromatic epics anachronistically woven against a backdrop of industrial darkness, um, Burgess's Great Bookcase and Morris's Golden Wings. Now, although Burgess and Morris and co. were awarded gold medals in 1862 for their painted furniture as, I quote, outstanding examples of art manufactures, Burgess's medieval court and its displays were criticized in the press as an anomaly, this is a term that is used uh, on several uh, occasions, in an industrial age. 600 years have passed since the style of Jan Cabinet was in vogue, an anonymous reviewer um, thus commented on the court's furnishing. Designed by uh, Burgess's, uh, Burgess for his London office on Buckingham Street, the great bookcase certainly appealed, uh, appeared as a powerful public chromatic statement about the aesthetic wealth of the pagan and Christian past. A mise en abîme of a Gothic edifice, it was modelled on um, a polychrome 14th century cabinet in Noyon Cathedral, described by Viollet-le-Duc. It is also evoked, this particular cabinet is also evoked in, in Burgess's 1865 lecture on furniture as a model of colored decoration for designers, I quote, lamenting the absence of color around us in our daily life. In keeping with Burgess's belief in the narrative function of decoration, this bookcase designed to contain uh, Burgess's book, uh, books on art relates the origins of the fine arts, just as the Yatman Ecritoire, painted by Pointer, related the history of Cadmus, who invented the alphabet. But in the case of the bookcase, uh, no fewer than 14 promising young artists took part in the project, a collaboration which clearly emulated that of medieval craftsmen. 
Now, the organization of the panels is not uh, chronological, but thematic and chromatic, as Burgess strove to incorporate the pictorial elements within the overall structure, thanks to alternating blue and gold backgrounds. And this is very different from what Morris was doing in painted furniture, uh, using the structure merely as a sort of easel for the painting. Now, the, the panels on the right describe the pagan origins of architecture. Here you see Rhodopis ordering a pyramid by Pointer and poetry. Oh, this is Sappho and Phaon by Henry Holiday. We also have painting, uh, uh, maybe Apilles by Frederick Smallfield, and sculpture, uh, Pygmalion Galatea by Simeon Solomon. On the left, we find the Christian pendant to these pagan uh, panels with the apparition of Beatrice to Dante by Pointer and maybe Rossetti and uh, St. John and the New Jerusalem by Solomon. We also have for sculpture Edward I and Toro, uh, Edward I uh, and, and Toro by Albert Moore and Fra Angelico painting the Virgin by Thomas Morton. Now, such eclecticism reflects Burgess's archaeological interest in both Greek and Gothic polychromy, as well as his literary taste for the classical sources of medieval poetry. L'Ovid Moralisé, which Burgess consulted in Rouen Library and which he refers to in his essay on paganism in the Middle Ages, thus certainly served as a model for the priorities depicted by Stacey Marks on the base of the bookcase. I have no time, unfortunately, to discuss all the stories related in these panels, but I find what, I, what I find so compelling about them is that they all somehow reflect contemporary debates about the colours of the past, um, whether in sculpture, architecture, painting or poetry. Now, this is notably the case with the two Solomon panels. His representation, Solomon's representation of the Ovidian subject of Venus painting the cheeks of the statue to awaken uh, her body to Pygmalion's desire, and of course this would uh, soon become a favourite story uh, of Morris and, and Burne-Jones, resonates with discussion of the, t uh, of the tinted Venus, which Burgess may well have seen in Rome in the mid-1850s, and which Gibson himself conceived as his very own Galatea, as you can see in the quotation. Now, here is a little nearer approach to life. Yes, yes, indeed, she seems an ethereal being with her blue eyes fixed upon me. But Solomon's New Jerusalem panel um, is more relevant to our discussion today. It uh, represents an angel uh, clad in majestic purple measuring the celestial temple before humbled St. John dressed in a dark green robe. Burgess, who designed the panel, may have found inspiration in the colourful depictions of the heavenly city in uh, the illuminated manuscripts kept at the British Museum, which Solomon was also consulting at the time. And this is, I don't know if you can see this, but you have incrustations of gold in, in, in the representation of the, uh, of the heavenly city. As he was working on the Burgess Commission, Solomon, interestingly, sketched a more private study for Ezekiel and the angel formerly in the possession of Robert Ross. The scene appears as the homoerotic counterpart to the colourful bookcase panel, as it depicts a naked angel side by side with an elderly bearded uh, head-bent Ezekiel. Solomon was then, of course, exploring Old Testament you know, so prefigurations of the New Testament, and in this case, the closing vision of the prophet Ezekiel, who, uh, guided by an angel with a measuring rod, is shown the beauty of God's temple. Now, although Solomon's drawing of Ezekiel is colourless, in both uh, the Theophanes, uh, Theophanes, sorry, precious stones emit a radiance illustra illustrating the presence of God. The heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation 21.9.23 nonetheless stands out as the more uh, dazzlingly colourful sight. And I won't have time to, to read this long quotation, but uh, I've tried to highlight you know, the passages referring to colour. Now, colour terms being rather scarce in the scriptures, such a chromatic revelation must have appealed to both a painter of religious subjects like Solomon and a chromophile art architect like Burgess. Now, although he was not a religious man, Burgess indeed believed that architecture was, I quote, part of the great poem of, uh, of Christian art. 
Here, the city of God is metonymically designated by a pillar of 12 colored foundation stones. So, and the order of the colors strictly follows uh, those listed in the King James Bible, as the underdrawing uh, notation reveals. And I'm, I would like to thank, again, Matthew for this extraordinary uh, image. Although they do not qu appear quite as luminous as the precious gems evoked in Revelation, the gleaming, uh, the, the, the gleaming uh, gold background, the ruby-like vial that the angel carries around his waist, and the, the, the three golden halos, as well as the mirror-like um, glass floor, certainly capture the divine radiance, reminiscent of the coloured rays of light filtering through stained glass. Uh, and in, and the, bio, the biblical text goes, the street of the city was pure gold as it were, transparent glass. Now, this emphasis on transparency is equally found in Solomon's uh, similar design for a stained glass window. And sorry, this is very bad reproduction. Uh, commissioned by Burgess in 1862, and, or possibly 1861, and for which a possible source of inspiration may have been uh, the chapter on biblical gems and stained glass of, uh, on diverse art by the 12th century monk Theophilus, um, translated by Mary Merrifield in 1849, and uh, this text was also well known to Morris and his circle. Now, Burgess's choice of the heavenly Jerusalem for the panel representing architecture was also certainly motivated by the fact that the colourful revelation had already served as lit uh, liturgical and theological justification for the use of coloured materials in the decoration of Gothic <coughs> cathedrals in the 12th and 13th in, in, in 12th and 13th century France, a period which Burgess emulated in his own architectural practice. As Otto von Simmons observes, I quote, the Christian sanctuary is liturgically and mystically an image of the heavenly Jerusalem. The medieval dedication rite establishes this relationship in explicit terms, and the 12th and 13th centuries appear singularly preoccupied with this symbolic significance of sacred architecture. This echoed Neoplatonic discussions of divine light in St. Augustine, whom Solomon depicted as embodying Christian philosophy on the side of the bookcase, with, of course, Plato as his pagan pendant. An heir to these Neoplatonic debates, Abbot Suger uh, believed that colour was akin to light, that is to say both visible and immaterial, which enabled him to use luminous materials, uh, notably jewels and stained glass, in the uh, construction and decoration of his new abbey at Saint-Denis, the first Gothic church completed in 1144. Now, not only did Suger conceive a whole new spatial order to let more light into the edifice, he also drew on the Old and New Testaments to justify its luxurious ornamentation, advocating an, a, an agogical shift from the material to the immaterial. Uh, and this is Panofsky's uh, translation of Suger. Thus, uh, when out of my delight in the beauty of the house of God, the loveliness of the many-coloured gems has called me away from external cares and worthy meditation has introduced, induced me to reflect, transferring that which is material to that which is immaterial on the diversity of the sacred virtues. Now, it is unclear how familiar Victorian writers were with the writings of Suger. Burgess certainly mentions Suger in his 1865 lecture on gold and silver. And Ruskin's discussion of the relationship between architecture and theology in his 1870 lectures on art also appears quite close to Suger's conception of the sacredness of Gothic cathedrals. I quote, Let us take an instance, the most noble with which I am acquainted, the Cathedral of Chartres. You have here the most splendid coloured glass and the richest sculpture and the grandest proportions of building united to produce a sensation of pleasure and awe. We profess that this is to honour the deity, or in other words, that, that it is pleasing to him that we should delight our eyes with blue and golden colours and solemnise our spirits by the sight of large stones laid one on another and ingeniously carved. Now, this passage clearly solemnizes the colours of the Gothic past, reflected in its most sacred, costly blues and golds. 
Ruskin draws on the example of the sublime stained glass windows at, uh, of Chartres to articulate the visual and the visionary. As with the luminous, I quote, large stones laid one on, uh, on another of the New Jerusalem. Now, this modern re-evaluation of the dual nature of colour, both material and spiritual, is also perceptible, I, I, I believe, in, in Morris's first volume of poetry, The Defence of Guinevere, which, like Solomon's New Jerusalem panel, explores the aesthetic potentialities of colour as conducive to a form of material sublime. Victorian reviewers of The Defence of Guinevere often singled out the poem Golden Wings as one of the best in the collection. This was known to be the case of H.H. H. Statham, who in his 1897 review described Golden Wings as, I quote, characteristic of a decorator poet, quoting the expression red brick lip, used on line 14, as one that, I quote, might have come out of a PRB picture and indicated to the turn in architectural taste, which was to lead into a brick building generation. Earlier in the century, it would have been marble lip. Now, this comment is an interesting one, as it differs from most Victorian readings of the volume as disconnected from the concerns of the modern age. The image of the red brick lip was indeed for Statham, I quote, a sign of the times, echoing contemporary architectural experiments, possibly including the poet's own red house, started in 1858, and which, of course, Rossetti described, I quote, as more a poem than a house in 1862. Now, in this poem, loosely set in medieval France, which only rarely adopted the brick Gothic of northeastern Europe and northern Italy, the term indeed stands out as strangely out of place and out of time, more reminiscent of Butterfield's uh, polychrome churches of the 1850s than of Froissart's chronicles. Now, the reintroduction of coloured bricks in Victorian architecture, encouraged by the 1850 repeal of the brick tax, was indeed embraced by Street, uh, um, Morris's mentor, uh, in his 1855 brick and marble. I quote, uh, Our buildings are, in nine cases out of ten, cold, colourless, insipid academical studies, and our people have no conception of the necessity of obtaining rich colour, and no sufficient love for it when successfully obtained. The task, therefore, and duty of architects at the present day is mainly that, awake, uh, that of awakening and then satisfying this feeling. And one of the best and most ready vehicles for doing this, no doubt, is the rich coloured brick so easily manufactured in this country, which, if properly used, may become so effective and admirable a material. Now, in the light of these architectural debates, Morris's liminal red brick lip signals a form of temporal and geographical disjunction in keeping with the subject of the poem, separation. Now, this is indeed an odd tale of estrangement, uh, which opens in an ideal medieval setting and ends in ruin, ruin, war and death, as in Morris's Froissartian poems. In recent criticism, the poem has been rarely discussed. Even Elizabeth Helsinger leaves it out of her compelling analysis of colour in the defence of Guinevere. Now, what is particularly misleading is the escapist title, Golden Wings, which immediately ushers the reader into a medieval golden age, or rather dreamlike land of colours, to quote from King Arthur's tomb, another poem in the collection. Um, so this is the, the opening stanza. Many scarlet bricks there were in its walls, an old grey stone, over which red apples shone at the right time of the year. On the bricks the green moss grew, yellow lichen on the stone, over which red apples shone. Little wore that castle new. Deep green water filled the moat, each side had a red brick lip. But the timeless world described in these opening lines is only a short-lived fantasy. As the five swans in, I quote, the house of painted wood, a red roof gold spiked over it, announced the imbalance between the group of lovers who live in this ideal medieval decor. I quote again, Each wore a garland on the head, at ladies' guard the way was so. Fair Jeanne du Castelbeau wore her wreath till it was dead. 
Little joy she had of it, of the raiment white and red, or the garland on her head. She had none with whom to sit in the carven boat at noon. Now, Jeanne de Castelbeau stands out as the isolated maiden, longing to be reunited with her golden wings, a metonomical reference to the coat of arms of her long-gone uh, knight, as in Morris's uh, homonymous prose romance of 1856. He wrote another text entitled uh, eight, Golden Wings in 1856. Therefore, gold, the colour of wealth, paradoxically signals absence here, the absence of the knight who is never named or seen, except maybe in the last lines uh, of the poem, uh, enigmatically referring to, I quote, a slain man's stiffened feet. On the contrary, the colour red plays a key structural role in the narrative. Just as the castle is supported by a structure of red bricks, the poem seems literally built on chromatic variations on the colour red, in close connection with the body of Jeanne. Scarlet is thus the first chromatic notation in the text. Now, contrary to the flat, saturated colours used in the opening stanzas, scarlet, an adjective of medieval French origin, designating a rich cloth of bright colour, immediately points to the importance of chromatic materiality. The scarlet bricks not only clothe the castle, they also match the red apples covering the old grey stone, uh, thus supporting the romantic narrative of the organicity of Gothic architecture. On line 14, the scarlet bricks turn into a red brick lip to describe the banks of the moated island. Now, this image of the red lip paves the way for the depiction of the changing colours of the body of Jeanne, who longs for, I quote, sweet kisses on red lips, on line 119. Moreover, the colour adjective is strategically placed in rhyming position on numerous occasions. First in association with Jeanne's head, crowned with, I quote, a garland white and red, then with her erotic fantasies matching her purple bed, and finally as a site of poetic utterance rhyming with said. But all this was already implicit, I, I wish to argue, in the liminal image of the red lips repeated in Jeanne's song in the central section of the poem. And this song uh, is a, literally a mise en abîme of the whole poem. So this song, situated in the central section of the poem, is clearly the turning point in the narrative. Jeanne has shed her red raiment and her red shoes, or slippers, which causes her sweet face to redden, line 109, uh, 103, anticipating the final bloodbath. Uh, so I quote the song, The water slips, the red-billed moorhen dips, sweet kisses on red lips, alas, the red rust grips, and the blood-red dagger rips. Oh, yet, O oh night, come to me. Now, phonetic variations on the expression red brick lip here weave material images of violence and penetration into Jeanne's erotic fantasies as, she's in, as she is invoking her knight. Now, although the motif of the longing maid is, of course, very Tennysonian, uh, the tension between Eros and Thanatos, as Jeanne disrobes, also evokes, I believe, Madeleine's stripping in a Gothic decor in Keats's Eve of St. Agnes, which Morris enthusiastically read with William Fulford and Edward Byrne-Jones as they toured the cathedrals of northern France in the summer of 1855. And uh, this is, of course, the Eve of St. Agnes, and I won't read the two stanzas, just the second one, although the end of the, of the first stanza is interesting, uh, because of that sort of mingling of violence and eroticism, uh, a shielded scutcheon blushed with blood of queens and kings. Uh, so full on this casement shone the wintry moon and threw warm jewels on Madeline's fair breast. As down she knelt for heaven's grace and boon, rose bloom fell on her hands together pressed, and on her silver cross soft amethyst, and on her hair a glory like a saint. She seemed a splendid angel, newly dressed, save wings for heaven. Porfiro grew faint. Now, as Nicole Reynolds observes, the tension between the visionary and the materiality of vision is the crux of Keats's poem, which confronts Porfiro's scopic desires with Madeleine's mystic leanings. The enumerative paratactic style of the two stanzas, which immediately precede the erotic climax, not only suggests the wealth of Gothic ornamentation, 
but directly connects the warm stains and splendid dyes uh, decorating the room with the stain to come as the red light filtered through the stained glass throws warm jewels, and, and jewels of course is the heraldic term for red, uh, on Madeline's breast, targeting her as it were for the desire of Porfiro whose name, whose Greek name, of course, points to the intensity of royal purple and passion. Now, similarly, Keats plays with the sacred connotations of the translucent gems worn by saintly Madeline, newly dressed save wings for heaven. Um, and I think this overlapping of spiritual and material colours illustrated in a stained glass casement reflects Keats's conception of a material sublime, which he discussed in an 1818 verse letter, uh, which Reynolds analyzes as uh, a fraught but fruitful juxtaposition of the wordly and the otherworldly, underscored by the spatial architectural etymology of the, of the word sublime, um, which at, at its root means up to the threshold or lintel that piece of stone or timber placed over a door or window to discharge superincumbent weight. So colour also plays a central role in Keats's epistle as a sort of hinge, I believe, between spirit and body, light and shadow, transparency and opacity, dream and reality, as well as architecture and poetry. So these are the, the lines from the, uh, Keats's epistle to John Hamilton Reynolds. Oh, that our dreamings all of sleep or wake would all their colours from the sunset take, from something of material sublime, rather than shadow our own soul's daytime in the dark void of night. So, to conclude, I would argue that these were also the very tensions that Burgess and Morris addressed on the threshold of their artistic career in response to the transformations that colour was undergoing in the hands of chemists, the modern rainbow makers of the industrial age. Burgess's and Morris's chromatic narratives may have seemed like escapist dreams about the glowing colours of a bygone past. They, in fact, her heralded colour as the means for reforming the cold-like bleakness of modernity anticipating uh, the proleptic closing lines of Morris' anachronistic dream of John Ball. I quote, In truth, the dawn was widening now, and the colours coming into the pictures on walls and in window, and as well as I could see through the varied glazing of these last, the ruddy glow, which had but so little a while quite died out in the west, was now beginning to gather in the east. The new day was beginning. Thank you. <laughs>